Well, welcome everybody. Great to have you at church today. Um, for anyone that doesn't know me, I'm Pastor Aaron, and it's wonderful to have you joining with us for church today. Um, I'm not sure about you, but I've really been enjoying the story. And this is where we're in, chapter 10. Are we recording, by the way? Cool, well, lovely. Um, we're taking this journey through the Bible. And we began in January with the story of creation. And this series, with a couple of little breaks for school holidays, is going to take us right up until about mid-October to go right through the full 31 sessions. And that is going to conclude with Revelation. Now, if you want to take this journey with a small group, then there's a small group that meets here Wednesday fortnights at the church right here that Kelly and I host. And uh, we, 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 we're, back, we're at the same point. So our next session is chapter 10. So if you want to join with us now, and then we'll end this next year because we're doing it fortnightly, not weekly, um, then you can jump in and do the small groups that go along with this. And so you're more than welcome to join that. Um, now, we are using a tool for this series, or a, a study tool, a guide, and it's actually this version of the Bible called The Story. You can borrow this one if you like, or I've got other versions in my office as well. Um, but it basically is the Bible arranged chronologically, and it's not fully complete. So it's actually taking the bits out of it that follows the 31 weeks. But it's the NIV. Um, it's just arranged a little bit differently. So it's still scripture, um, but just organised according to a timeline. And that makes it really easy for us to understand when things happened. And it especially makes it easier for someone who might be getting acquainted with scripture. This week is chapter 10. And in this chapter, we're looking at three characters. And I'm going to focus just on character number three, because this sermon will be long enough just with the third character, let me tell you that. Um, but character number one is Hannah. Lovely story of Hannah, the mother who prayed. Her son was Samuel, and he was the answer to the prayer of both Hannah and the priest. And he became a priest himself, a prominent priest in the days of ancient Israel. And then character number two is Saul. Saul is the first king of Israel who fell because of his pride. Now, their stories really serve as a hinge, kind of like a gate in between the days of the judges and the days of kings. These 400 years were roughly 1400 BC to 1000 BC. And in your Bibles, it's called the days of the judges. The days of the judges, they are 400 years where Israel was not really a nation. They were more like a, a loose confederacy of tribes. And they didn't have a king. And during those days, they had judges, not judges with a gavel like we'd think of today, but judges that were more like overseers. They'd do everything from resolving disputes to leading tribes into battle. And during this time, the nation of Israel began to sink its roots into, during this 400 years, into the promised land, which is now the nation of Israel. They were surrounded by enemy nations, and these enemy nations were increasingly hostile toward Israel. These, of course, these nations surrounding them were the Amorites, the Amalekites, and the Cellulites. No, that's a bad joke, isn't it? Terrible, sorry. They're, they're the Philistines. Um, now, for whatever reason, they were turning their anger toward the Hebrew people. 
It could be that they wanted easier trade routes with the coast. It could be that they wanted the promised land themselves. But for whatever reason, they were increasingly hostile toward the Hebrews. And the Hebrew people, well, they were outmanned militarily as well. The Amorites, the Philistines, the Amalekites, they were in their day military powers, chiefly because they had a king. Each nation had a king. Also, the Philistines had the monopoly, said that word weird, monopoly on iron. So what did that mean? Well, it meant that they had superior technology, superior military technology to the Hebrews. And their weapons were far more advanced. There was a time, which we read about in Scripture, where it tells us that the whole entire nation of Israel just had one sword and it belonged to King Saul. One sword for a whole nation. Can you imagine that? And so, of course, they felt intimidated. They felt like they were sitting ducks. So their response was they went to Samuel, the priest, and said, we want a king. They said, Samuel... We want a king. That was their prayer. See, up until that point, they had no king but Yahweh, but God. They trusted God to lead them and to guide them. But they wanted a king. And I think it's interesting that in times of testing, in times of trouble, trouble, God's people have a tendency to follow the ways of the world rather than the ways of the Lord. The children of Israel looked around and said, well, everybody else has a king. We want a king too. Oh, everyone else is doing it. We may as well do it too. It's amazing how in times of testing and trouble, God's people have a tendency to follow the ways of the world rather than the ways of the Lord. And Samuel, he tried to talk them out of it. If you're following the scripture, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 5. It's also on the screen. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, you are old. Thank you. I'm sure that helped his ego a bit. You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. Samuel tried to dissuade the people. He told them that a king would would take a tenth of their crops. He told them that a king would turn their sons into soldiers and their servants into his own. He warned them that they would become slaves to the king. He warned them that, that God would not hear them when they cried out for help. But still they insisted. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And so the people wanted a king, and the saga of Saul began. Saul can first be described as tall and timid. 
he was tall and timid. The first reference to this, this glorious future king from the nation of Israel involves Saul's appearance. 1 Samuel 9.2 Kish had a son named Saul. As handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than everyone else, than anyone else. So he was a kingly looking sort of guy. I guess you could envision him with Chris Hemsworth looks, but he didn't have Chris Hemsworth money and didn't have Chris Hemsworth reputation. In fact, he entered the stage looking for a donkey. 1 Samuel 9, 5, Saul said to the servant who was with him, come, let's go back and my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. He was a donkey herder. David, you'll remember, who we will study after Easter, was a sheep herder. Saul, his predecessor, was a donkey herder and their personalities kind of reflected their flocks. David was tender and responsive. Saul was stubborn and hard-headed, but not at first. Because at the beginning, he resisted being a king. He said to Samuel, but, I am, not, but am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? In other words, am I not from the wrong side of the tracks? Because the Benjamite tribe, well, they were the sort of the vagabond tribe, that they were the gypsies. They had a hard time settling down. And then he says, I'm, I'm from the least of the families. I'm from the bottom of the social ladder. I'm, I'm not the person. And so he resisted. He's actually humble. And he felt unqualified, tall but timid. He felt unqualified for the job. In fact, when Samuel told the people he would be their king, the people inquired further of the Lord. Like, uh, you got this right? Are you sure? So they inquired further of the Lord. 1 Samuel 10, 22. Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes. He's hidden himself among the supplies. Saul was hiding, right? He was hiding in the pantry. His was in the supply cupboard going, no, not me. That's what he's doing. He was tall but timid. He had good looks, but weak ancestry and a severe case of timidity. He had no swagger and that was okay with God. Samuel told him, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them and you will be changed into a different person. As Saul tried to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. I love that. God changed Saul's heart. Who controls the heart of a king or a prime minister or a premier? or a president, God does. God can change the heart of a leader. God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. So God, he set Tim and Saul apart for his royal work. Samuel gave the young king this instruction. Now this is important for later in the sermon, so pay attention. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. 
I will surely come down to you and sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. So Samuel said, we're going to kick off your reign with a prayer retreat. I guess we could probably interpret that as, you know, something similar. We're going to go to Gilgal. We're going to offer sacrifices. We're going to seek the guidance of the Lord. We're going to start out right. We're going to kick off your royal government with a time of prayer and sacrifice. That's a good idea, isn't it? And Saul, he was happy to do it. I mean, he wanted all the help he could get. But before he could get to Gilgal, some of the Hebrews were attacked by some of the neighbouring nations, opening the door to a major event in Saul's life. And so Saul, tall and timid, became Saul, strong and mighty. Enemies overtook the inhabitants of a region called Jabesh-Gilead, and they offered to let the Hebrews live on one condition. That was that they allow, the enemy allows them to gouge out their right eyes. The Hebrews people's right eyes. That was their, if you want to live, fine, but we want your right eye. Now, this is the Bronze Age. Everything we're going to discover through this period of time is going to be a bit barbaric, isn't it? I mean, I'm talking about gouging your eyes out. Like, it's pretty full on, right? But it's a Bronze Age. So, so they've said, we'll let you live as long as we can have your right eye. And Saul heard of this. Well, he erupted with anger. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen cut them into pieces and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Pretty nifty military recruiting tool, if you, you, know, if you, if you ask me. Then the terror of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out together as one. There we go. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the, of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. You know, we read elsewhere in Scripture that through this recruiting drive, Saul recruited some 330,000 men. They marched against the Ammonites, the Hebrews prevailed, and Saul was seen as the victor. All of a sudden, the Hebrews had an answer to their prayer. They had a king and a man. Oh, man, did they love this king. In fact, some of them dared to say, if you don't follow Saul and Samuel, we're going to kill you. Boy, what loyalty they had to Saul, this new king. But Saul softened their declaration. Saul said, no one will be put to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. Saul has a victory, yet Saul has humility. He says, God is the one who rescued Israel. But you know what? Things are about to get bad. We begin to sense now that Saul starts reading his own press. He starts believing his own press. 
We begin to get hints that his crown is feeling to, starting to feel a bit tight around his head because his head's beginning to swell. He gets a, you know, puffy in the chest and, uh, and gets a little swagger. He's got one victory under his belt and he thinks he deserves to be king. Have you ever noticed that some people can survive adversity but they can't survive prosperity? Some people can survive difficulty but success brings them down. And that's exactly what happened to Saul. What happened next is that the Philistines came against the Hebrews. The Philistines had 3,000 chariots. Can you imagine looking up on a hillside and seeing 3,000 chariots coming at you? Well, Saul's men panicked and they ran. The scriptures said that they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. They just took off. And Saul grew restless. He somehow needed to assemble his men, then go into battle, yet he had a promise he had to keep. He told Samuel that he would meet him in Gilgal. He'd wait for Samuel to come and they would offer sacrifices and they would seek the Lord's blessing upon the administration of Saul. But Saul thought Samuel sure was taking his sweet time. He's thinking, I need to fight these Philistines. I don't have time to wait and worship. So here it is. Saul was too busy to worship. He was too big to obey. What we see next are the indications that he was too busy to worship and too big to obey. Saul took matters into his own hands. Remember, he was supposed to wait on Samuel, the priest, until Samuel arrived. And what was Samuel going to do? Samuel was going to make the sacrifices and offer the animals. Well, Saul couldn't wait. So he said, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered the burnt offerings. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. But, and I have not sought the Lord's favour, so it, I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. You see, the offering of a sacrifice was not the job of a king. It was the job for the priest, not even King Saul. So all of a sudden, another side of Saul is beginning to surface. Do we see it? A side of Saul that's too busy to worship. He says, you know, I've got to get this worship thing done. I've just got to get over and done with, you know, get the Lord's favour on me quick. I've got to fight. I've got to go into battle. I've, I've got an army to lead. I'm too busy to worship. Just let this get, let's get it done. Something had happened to that timid boy of Benjamin. He once hid among bags. Now he assumes the role of priest. Picking it up again in verse 13. You've done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. 
You might know who that is. Um, it's David. He's already got his hand on David because you have not kept the Lord's command. See, Saul was once too small to be king. Now he's too busy, too stressful, too hurried to worship. And if disrespecting the worship of God wasn't enough, now he disrespects the word of God. He does something else. God told Saul to smite the nation of Amalek totally destroying all that belongs to them, put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. It's what God told Saul to do. And it's a hard command. There's a reason for that, and I'll give it to you here in just a second. Saul attacked the Amalekites, but he did not fully obey what, he said, what God said. He didn't fully obey what God said. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the, with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. We can only speculate why Saul didn't do what God said. I assume he was thinking, well, you know, Agag's better off to me alive today, so I'm going to keep the king alive. I'm not going to destroy all the livestock like God said, but I've got these soldiers I've got to feed. You know, or, or I could use some of these, these sheep and cattle. You know, for whatever reason, though, he didn't fully obey what God said. Saul was just getting cocky. He was filtering the commands of God through his common sense, and his common sense was distorted. He didn't know the whole story. He didn't have time to worship and he was too big to obey God. Yet he did have time to do this. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 12, he went to Carmel to set up a victory monument in his own honour. Doesn't that sound like a lovely king, a God-honouring, humble king that Israel was looking for? He set up a victory monument in his own honour. Well, hello! You know, you don't have to have time to wait on Samuel to worship, but you have time to go to Carmel and build yourself this big monument? What's happening to King Saul? When he saw Samuel later, he boasted, I accomplished God's plan to the letter. Samuel said, so what's this I'm hearing, this bleating of sheep, this mooing of cattle? Caught. See, I'm wondering if Saul was very bright. Because, I mean, how do you hide sheep and cattle? I mean, our neighbours have two cows and you can hear them all the time. Like, how do you hide a whole heap of them? It's crazy. And Saul, I hear the animals. You were supposed to destroy them all. So Saul does the only thing a, a respected godly king would do. He has a tantrum and he blames the soldiers. He downplayed the severity of the deed, but Samuel knew and the king knew really that Saul had just sawed off his own limb. 1 Samuel 15, 17. When you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? In other words, when you weren't so big on yourself, when there wasn't this huge life-size version of you taped to your own bedroom wall, you know, when you weren't so big on yourself, but when you were small in your own eyes, 
then you are really the head of the tribes. Then people, then people looked up to you. Then you could be used by God. But the implication is you got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger in your own eyes. Then you couldn't see God. Does that make sense? You're too busy to worship, too big to obey. See, Saul had a kingdom to build. He had things to do. He had a nation to lead. He got bigger and bigger and bigger. And as he did, he grew further and further from God. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and he has given it to your neighbor, who, uh, to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Never have the words of 1 Peter 5.5 5 been so clearly modelled. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. It is possible to be too big for your own good. It is possible to, do, to be too big. Here's a question, have you, are you headed that way? The story of Saul, I think, gives us some warnings. It's not really an encouraging story. It's a warning story. And the warnings it gives us are basically to look out for two signs of an arrogant heart. The first of those, sign number one, too busy to worship God. You're just too busy. Worship in Saul's economy was a thing that needed to get done so he could get on to what really needed to get done. You know, I think our society is full of people like Saul. On a given weekend, on a given Sunday, people are too busy to worship, too distracted to worship, too tired to worship. Or dare we say what the scripture says, too arrogant to worship. You see, worship is an act of humility. Everything about worship is an act of humility. The bending of the knees, the bowing of the head, the lifting up of empty hands, everything says, I cannot but God, you can. I cannot, but God, you can. So where there is the presence of worship, there is the existence of a humble heart. But where there is the absence of worship, there is the attitude that says, I can't, I'm too busy, I'm too important, I've got things to do. You know, I'm sure just like you, I am guilty of that at times. The number of times that I'm more focused with my to-do list on my brain, I never get a chance to write it down, otherwise that would just be another something I could tick off the box. Um, but I'm too busy to, to take those few moments sometimes to, to worship, just to go to God and worship. You know, I'd be embarrassed if you actually knew how often this happened. I, I kind of like to get things done. I feel pressure to be productive and to get as much done as I can rather than take those precious first moments to go to God with an open Bible and an open heart. I don't ever say it, I don't ever say that I don't have time to do that, but I just plunge into the day and, and plough into the day thinking, I've got to get this done, I've got to get that done, I've got to go and do this, I've got to go see this person, I've got to do whatever. And you know what that is? Well, I I'm guilty too of an arrogant heart at times. Do I honestly think I can do it without God? No. Do you honestly think you don't need to take time today to say, God, 
could you go ahead of me today? You see, the worshipful heart is actually just a humble heart, a heart that comes before God and says, I can't face this day without first facing you. Do you find yourself in that position as often as I seem to find myself in that spot? Focus on what I need to do rather than focusing on what I need to be. I need to be a worshipper of God first. Because I know that there's a devil alive in this day and he's setting traps for me and for you. I know that, that I have weaknesses and that I fall into those weaknesses. So Almighty God, I can't face this day without first facing you. If that sounds familiar to, to me, uh, if that sounds familiar to you as it is to me, maybe you could join with me in resolving to begin each day, each week, with heartfelt worship. Never too busy to worship. And the second sign of an arrogant heart is too big to obey. The arrogant heart is too big to obey. Saul, I guess, could justify not destroying all of the Amalekites. But the truth of the matter is, he did not want to obey what God said. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He didn't say, if you love me, you'll always be happy. He didn't say, if you agree with my commandments, you'll keep them. He simply said, if you love me, you're going to do what I say. That's kind of what it boils down to. Sometimes God gives us commands and we do like what Saul did. I mean, we filter them through our own common sense. Yeah, but I'm an exception to that. Or oh, no, maybe I don't need to do that. I don't understand. Why would God want me to do this? You know, maybe that's what Saul was thinking. I don't know. I don't understand why God would want me to destroy all the Manatechites. Again, this is a Bronze Age story, it's brutal, it's harsh, but there was a reason that God wanted Saul to destroy all of the Amalekites. You see, Amalek and his descendants were enemies of God. This was an ancient hostility, not just between the Hebrews and the Amalekites, but really between God and the devil. And the devil had captured this nation of the Amalekites and he was using them persistently, Every time they appear in Scripture, they're trying to destroy the lineage of Jesus Christ. It's an ancient version of Hitler or the KKK or some supremacist group that says, we're going to destroy the Hebrews. The earnest appearance of anti-Semitism is found among the Amalekites. And so God said, let's just destroy those people. Let's destroy their philosophy. Let's destroy it all now. Their first appearance is in the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verse 16. They have dared to raise their fist against the Lord's throne, so now the Lord will be at war with Amalek generation after generation. So Saul had the opportunity to destroy this ancient hostility that was hell-bent on destroying the bloodline of Jesus Christ. And he could have done it, but he didn't. He spared the king, King Agag. He spared the cows and the sheep. Now, according to one rabbinic tradition, Agag lived long enough to father a child. And that philosophy of anti-Semitism continued. Would the bigotry 
toward the Jewish people have discontinued had Saul obeyed? We don't know, but maybe. The truth is, though, that Saul disobeyed. He was too big to obey God. I wonder if there's some error in your life. Once you sense God giving you a command and yet you say, well, but yeah, maybe, oh, I don't know. God says, forgive your enemy. Yeah, you know, but he's a real jerk. God says, love those who are disrespectful to you. Yeah, but, you know, we can always have the yeah buts, don't we? God says, seek first the kingdom of God. Yeah, but be careful when you sense that surfacing in your heart. Be careful. That's, that's the spirit of an arrogant God. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. It's the spirit of an arrogant heart that says, well, I know a little bit more than you do, God. Be careful. Allow God to warn you. Don't make the mistake of Israel's first king. As scripture says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. You know, it is possible to, to, to be too big for God, but it's never possible to be too small for God. God gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You know, I don't really like the story of Saul. I don't know about you, but I don't like it. It, it, it ends on such an unhappy note. I can't wait to study David with you and then when we return after Easter, it ends on a happy note. But you know, stories like Saul's are in the Bible for a reason. Cautionary tales, they are there to remind us what happens when we get too big for our own good. You know, today wasn't that warm and fuzzy, pick you up, make you feel better day, was it? You know, with this story of Saul. But maybe the Lord may use the story of Saul to give us a warning to help us be small in our own eyes so that God can be big. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is our prayer. We want to remain humble in your presence, completely trusting and dependent upon you. We confess to our need for a king, but our king is not on this earth. Our King is on the heavenly throne, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord. We bless you now. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.
some time of fellowship and uh, get to know each other, have a chat, enjoy each other's company. He sent his son to die and rise again to save us. He's broken our chains and given us freedom. 